BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Some people are attempting to revive the ancient practice of stoicism for a modern world. And coming up on October 15th in New York City, there's a chance to learn more about ancient stoicism, its modern practice, and its relationship to mindfulness and cognitive behavioral therapy at Stoicon 16. Speakers include author Ryan Holiday, philosophers Massimo Pigliucci and Julia Annis, and cognitive psychologist Debbie Joff Ellis, and many more. If you'd like to learn more about how the ancient philosophy of Stoicism can help you flourish in modern life, consider attending Stoicon 16 in New York City. For more information and for tickets, search for Stoicon on Eventbrite or go to howtobeastoic.org slash S-T-O-I-C-O-N. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 85. Our guest in this episode is Dr. Julia Shaw, a psychologist, a senior lecturer and researcher in the Department of Law and Social Sciences at London's South Bank University. She not only teaches classes on criminology and psychology, she also consults as an expert on criminal cases, and she writes for Scientific American for a column they have called Memory Mondays, where she talks all about how memory is, well, fallible and illusory and mostly fiction, and how very easy it is to implant false memories in people's minds. In fact, the work that she did, which showed that you can easily convince someone that they committed a felony, even though they did not. You can get them to admit it, to believe that they have a real memory of doing something that would put them in jail, is why she has the new book called The Memory Illusion. It just came out, and I thought it would be great to replay her interview from last year. It was really great, and I think it would be interesting to go back through it and get ready for her new book, which just hit the shelves. So let's pick her brain. Okay, so Julia, I think many of us believe that our memories are perfect recordings and snapshots, and they're locked away inside of our heads until we go digging for them, and then we pull them out, and then we see them in in perfect detail like they occurred. Um, What does science have to say about those sort of intuitions? Well, certainly the notion of memory as a video camera or as a photograph uh, is, is incredibly prevailing. And memory has poked many, many holes into that notion, suggesting that actually memory is 
largely uh, self-created, reconstructed, and has fiction built in almost automatically. So it's an incredibly malleable process. So it's really open to distortion and it's inaccurate. Are those, that's pretty, we can pretty much say that for sure at this point? For sure. So the question has changed in the last, I'd say, 10 years or so, where memory researchers have stopped asking what, how can we help people remember things or uh, how good is memory? It's how bad is memory slash um, how malleable are things? So it's really looking for fallacies, looking for problems rather than looking for uh, how good it works because it's inherently not so good. That's crazy because, you know, the, I think that when we think about ourselves, like, you know, uh, we want to, we, we start imagining our, 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 our very essence, our soul. We, we, we look to our memories. I mean, our memories are what make us who we are. If you, in science fiction, when it plays around with that concept, you know, you remake people by wiping their memory and letting them start over again. Um, the, how we, how trustworthy are uh, the memories that we cherish? Uh, like the 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 story of who we are as a person. It, how, as a scientist, would you um, do you view that the trustworthiness of that that narrative that we construct out of our memories? So the narrative, just be, because each and every one of our memories is prone to the same kinds of distortions, arguably, um, there's no reason for particularly emotional or particularly as you call them, important life events to be preserved in any particularly different way. So they're equally prone to distortion. And that means that our personal narrative can be <laughs> and is largely fiction and is largely, as you said, uh, inceptionable, if you will, <laughs> uh, where or people, other people can go in there and add bits to your memories. You can go in there every time you recall it and add bits or change bits. Um, and I mean, from the very beginning, the way you look at the world is through a filter and that filter continues and kind of like what, what do you like, what people sometimes like to say is the more often you tell a story, the better it gets. <laughs> so we embellish, we add to it intentionally and unintentionally. So if you were to like, just uh, like a, just a, uh, just a guess, just a, a spitball, a speculative um, um, thing here, I would like what percentage would you say of a typical person's memories are fictional? A hundred percent. That is a controversial statement, but uh, Elizabeth Loftus, who's arguably the leading researcher in false memory research, uh, recently had a TED talk and she said, all memory is essentially false. And it's, again, the, the statements or the type of statement we hear echoed throughout the literature right now. Um, and it's, it's a good enough principle. It's memory is good enough, evolutionary speaking, just like everything else in our bodies, from our eyes to our stomachs to our muscles. Um, memory is good enough to to survive. It's not perfect. Well, that is uh, that's a little frightening. Uh, the because uh, like, I I've seen I've seen uh, I read somewhere a neuroscientist who said you know they <clears throat> they reasoned that it was maybe seventy percent of your memories were completely completely fictional. And, uh, and that scared me. But now you said 100% and I'm terrified. I wouldn't say that they're completely fictional. I just say that elements of them are fictional. All right. So it's a um, highly embellished, highly um, uh, rewritten to make us feel better about ourselves or to cover up the bad parts. Not necessarily, not necessarily to make us feel better. I mean, my research points at how we can embellish 
notions or, or events create them out of nowhere from nowhere um, that about very negative things. Oh, yeah. So about committing crimes. So this does not have to be mean that it's always going to improve for the better. It just means it changes over time and it can improve for the better, but it can also just become more extreme, more dramatic or less dramatic. <laughs> so I, uh, we'll get to your, your research uh, in just a second, but before that, you know, what you're saying with the, that, of how our, our our memory is so malleable and that it's distorted in both uh, positive and negative directions, depending on how we've been, uh, what we've uh, interacted with. If, if we sort of have this metaphor that's been around for a while of the computer hard drive or the filing <laughs> or a filing cabinet, um, yeah. what would be your better metaphor for how memory works? Uh, not my metaphor. I'm going to steal it. What is it? Great, great artist, good artist, copy, great artist, steal. <laughs> <laughs> right. Stealing from Beth Loftus again, she likes to compare it to a Wikipedia page. <laughs> so memory is like a Wikipedia page. You can go in there and change it, but so can other people. So it's the notion that it's, it's editable by yourself, by others, by anyone who has access to the internet, or in this case, by anyone who has access to your memory, or to you. And now we take a break from our show for a word from our sponsor. A few weeks back, my wife and I cooked a meal from Blue Apron over at my parents' house, and we brought over all the ingredients that came in the mail, and we made chicken meatloaf with mashed potatoes and green beans, and it was phenomenal. I loved cooking with my mom, reading about the different ingredients off of the material that came with the recipe, and the final product, it just, it was amazing. It fed the four of us no problem, and over the next few days, we made Blue Apron tacos and pasta and catfish all at our house, all in ways I had never had them with ingredients I had never used before. Now I totally get my people like Blue Apron so much. They ship fresh, high-quality, seasonal, pre-portioned ingredients that you can't find in grocery stores right to your house on a schedule that you set. And for less than $10 a meal, Blue Apron delivers them along with easy-to-read, full-color recipes with photos and additional information about where your food came from. Now, here's some of the meals that are available in September. Paprika spice shrimp and cheddar grits with tomato and sweet corn. <clears throat> Spicy chicken stir-fry with baby bok choy and sesame ginger cucumber salad. Come on. Eggplant and chickpea tagine with islander pepper and tomato and couscous. Summer udon noodle salad with cherry tomatoes, corn, and summer sweet pepper. Come on. And look, here's the thing. If you would like three meals free with shipping, three free with shipping, go to blueapron.com slash Y A N S S. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash Y A N S S. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. And now we return to our program. This is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. I'm David McRaney. Our guest is Dr. Julia Shaw, and we're going to pick up right where we left off. That's awesome. And so what does that mean for, um, I mean, we, a whole lot of our, like, civilization, our, the way we um, have tried to elevate ourselves above, uh, you know, primitive interactions is to have a legal system that slowly, you know, uh, uh, decides, you know, for us what is justice and, and keeps us from doing really um, you know, it keeps us away from vengeance and other weird things that we would do if we didn't have a sort of a, a framework for justice. 
a lot of that hinges on eyewitness testimony. Um, mm-hmm. How, from uh, an expert on memory, an expert on the psychology and neuroscience of memory, how should we be treating eyewitness testimony in the legal system? Well, the legal system, I mean, you point at justice. I mean, just the whole notion of justice is a whole other point for discussion. Um, but, of course, with, with regards to this memory research, the foundation of law being largely, yeah, as you said, eyewitnesses and confessions and just memory accounts in general, victims as well. We like to forget that victims can have false memories. Um, so you can think you were the victim of a crime that never happened. You can think you committed a crime that never happened. And you can see, think that you watched or heard a crime that never happened. So at all levels, memory, this fallible memory, <laughs> inherently fallible memory, um, is is going to have potential errors that are introduced automatically into the justice system. So it's no surprise when we hear accounts that are dissimilar in many ways or even completely conflicting. And that's not necessarily pointing to these people lying, but it could just be, again, these, the way that memory stored, retrieved, and um, just distorted over time. Mm-hmm. Confab- confabulation. I love that word. That's one of my favorite words. <laughs> Once that was added to my vocabulary, I, I drop it everywhere. And it's... Um... Except uh, that nobody knows what you're talking about. <laughs> yes, yeah, sir. Could you, uh, what is your definition for confabulation? Confabulation is when you generate details uh, about things that never happened in terms of memory. So, for example, a confabulated detail would be maybe you don't actually remember the color of someone's sweater in the last time you saw them. Um, but then in your, your mind, you're, you're confabulating a detail saying, oh, it was definitely red. It was definitely a red sweater. So you're, you're adding something. And confabulated events, entire events can happen as well. So again, you can, you can introduce a person. I, this happens to me all the time. I have disputes with my friends and family about who was with me at certain events or outings or vacations even. And they'll say, oh, but Sue was there. And I'll go, no, she wasn't. And it'll be back and forth. And then we'll dig out some photos to see whether she was or wasn't <laughs> there. Um, and this, this happens on a regular basis, I find, with people where they disagree on entire people's presences. Um, that's a person you're putting into a memory or taking out. One or both of those accounts must be wrong, right? Mm-hmm. So... Um. That's yeah. That's such a common part of. That's such a weird part of our interaction. As every human being experiences this, uh, several people getting together and remembering things differently, right. and it's kind of strange that we don't that we usually don't leave that and go. Well, it's probably because I don't remember anything very well, and I, my memory is 100. <laughs> but you know, it's just like, oh, well, that was a quirky thing for that one event, and it's hard. It's weird that you you don't really extrapolate it out to your entire life. Um, and there's a absolutely. The science writer Robert Krolwich uh, tells a great story about he, his wife remembered uh, his he he tells us he was telling a story to friends and family about how he uh, once saw a famous person on the street and his wife revealed to him that she was the person that saw it. He was <laughs> and he wasn't even there. And he completely confabulated this whole thing where he had stolen. He basically stole another person's memory and was using it as his awesome story. Yeah, um, that definitely happens regularly as well. <laughs> So confabulation, I guess it's sort of, it's lying, but you don't know you're lying. It's uh... it's not lying. No, no, no. Okay, don't, okay, don't use okay. that term Sorry, ever, okay. oh, ever. Okay. All right. Tell, not <laughs> uh, lying. Self-deception is uh, such a, oh, I reviewed a paper recently um, where they tried to equate self-deception, as they called it, to false memories. Now, the fundamental difference between deception and a false memory is that in deception, there's an inherent notion of intent. 
Mm-hmm. So you're actively trying to distort something or trying to misrepresent something. In a false memory, you have no idea it's happening. So that's the difference is maybe mm-hmm. in the origins of it, someone might have intent. So for example, me as a researcher might have intent to generate a false memory in you, or you might even have intent or desire to manipulate a memory. But once it's there, it's no longer a lie because it just becomes your reality. It becomes your memory. And so there's no intent involved anymore. That's good. So it's, it's a, not a point of contention, that's overstatement, but there, there is some disagreement in the literature as to it's even possible to self-deceive in that particular way, because you would always know that you're lying, mm-hmm. um, or if it's just other issues around cognitive dissonance or other psychological mechanisms where we're trying to make sense of a discord between, for example, our actions and our thoughts or reality and our perceptions or whatever. But for false memory, it is definitely not deception. Okay, good. I will. Not, I won't say that anymore. Lying. It's not. <laughs> it's not lying. Um, it is now that I've reprimanded you. <laughs> thank you. I won't. I will never do it again. Uh, <laughs> although I think I actually wrote that down in, in one of my books. So now I'm. I don't think I can get, go back and change it. But uh, when I, that I self deception is. Well, I said that confabulation was sort of. A, it's sort of. A, it's like lying without knowing that you're lying. But I, but I guess uh, a better way of putting it would be to describe the inten- the intentionality of what's going on. Because uh, a lot of the confabulation that I've written about in the past were people who have certain, um, you know, physical problems with their actual brains that's causing yeah. them to, um, to. There's several weird phenomena that come out of that, uh, where people will will completely confabulate entire, um, you know, experiences. Sometimes even, you know, denying their own disorders, um, and have there's they have zero knowledge or self-knowledge that they've done that they will even deny that they've done that so right yeah um but again deception yeah it's it's just that intentionality i mean if you define deception in a different way then that that works but (laughs) i generally define it it doesn't work no you're right no you're right i'm wrong i think that's good um i mean there is an overlap in that it's what's coming out of your mouth or what you're thinking about is different from reality mm -hmm. so in deception and in false memories you're whatever it is you're talking about as your memory is not a representation of reality. Um, so that's the same as deception. And do, um, so this, all these notions together, uh, what, what, what we're going to talk about your research now, cause it's just amazing. And, um, what was, <laughs> Thank you. it is, it's really, it's really amazing. And, uh, what is, what was your, um, inspiration for, uh, putting together this, this, this study and this research? The inspiration was, well, there's two inspirations. First of all, it had never been done. So I started delving into the literature on false memory generation in a lab-based environment and of criminal events in particular. And there's a fair amount of talk about it within forensic psychology. But then I realized that there actually hadn't been an empirical demonstration in the lab. And that was sort of a piece that was missing in order to convince judges and jurors that this was actually a thing. Because a lot of the studies that we did have up until my research, or all of them, focused on you got lost in a mall when you were five, or you uh, got attacked by a dog when you were eight, or when you were... So they were very young events. They were non-criminal events that were being generated in these false memory studies. Um, And the ones that were more towards criminal were mostly case studies. So they'd examined post hoc through... Mm -hmm agencies like the Innocence Project, they'd they'd examined cases and they'd found that false confessions were a leading cause of 
wrongful imprisonment. So there was these two pieces, but to me, they seemed a little bit disjointed still, and I wanted to put them together. And so I wanted to do a lab-based recreation, uh, recreation, <laughs> replication um, of adolescent memories of committing crime. And you know what? What I love about this and what's great about psychology, you know, is that being a young science, like you can, you can say, oh, well, this needs to be done. And then like, I mean, your, your research, uh, and you know, all this has to be replicated and torn apart for a couple of years, but it has the potential to really, really change the world, to change the way things are going to be done in the legal system. And, um, that's amazing. I'd like, to, I'd like to hope so. I'd like to think so. <laughs> that's what's, I mean, that's, inc- that's incredible. That's what science can do uh, and what psychological science can do. So um, take us through um, the study itself. What, did, what was the procedure? What happened? What was the procedure? So first of all, we had recruited participants for a screening phase. So the screening phase involved sending questionnaires about the potential participants to their primary caregivers. So our sample was mostly or exclusively university students. And these university students then signed up online and 127 people gave us their parents' contact information. Those we then sent the questionnaires. And these questionnaires asked about various things that had happened to these potential participants during a specified time frame. So between the ages of 10 and 18. And so what we wanted is, or what we needed, was one true memory of an emotional event that had happened during this time frame. And we wanted to make sure that they hadn't experienced any of the target events, as we called them. Mm-hmm. So the target events were the, the false memories that we wanted to generate. And so there were six events, and we had to make sure that they'd never had any police contact, they'd never assaulted someone, etc. And so 70 people met the criteria, so met these criteria that they had experienced something emotional that we could talk about first, and they hadn't experienced the target events. And so what we did is we, we got those people to come in. And those participants came in three times, each one week apart. And we would introduce the first memory when they came in after talking to them, establishing a little bit of rapport. And we'd say to them, so, because they knew that we'd contacted their parents, right? On the questionnaire that we sent to your parents, your parents said that when you were 15, you had a skiing accident, you were with your friend so-and-so, and you were in Switzerland when it happened. Can you tell us everything, or can you tell me, not us, uh, me, everything you remember about the event from start to finish, trying to leave nothing out, no matter how trivial it may seem. Now, that's verbatim what we said, essentially. Mm-hmm. And then they tell us all about this true memory. And it was relatively easy for most of them because, well, it had actually happened. Um, And then we'd go through the structured questionnaire and everything. And then for the second event, we say, okay, your parents also gave us a second event. And in this event, your parents reported that you had an incident where you were in contact with the police. Now, at this point, the participants started to, of course, look at us like, what incident with the police? Because, well, it had never happened, (laughs) as they should, right? They should act surprised that this is an account that we're telling them they experienced. Um, And then we did the same thing. So I then went ahead and said, so your parents said that when you were, and then I picked an age between 11 and 14, randomly, uh, when you were 13, you assaulted someone with a weapon and the police called your parents. You were with, and then I'd insert, and this is key, I think, I'd insert a true detail. So their actual best friend, for example, at the time when they were 13 would be in this. So you were with your friend, Paul, and Paul was actually the best friend of this person. You were in, 
their hometown. So it was the actual hometown of where they lived at the time. Um, and then tell me everything you remember from start to finish, trying to leave out nothing, no matter how trivial it may seem. So the same structure. But of course, here, they didn't have anything to say initially. And so then we said, okay, well, you can't remember this. Well, lots of people have trouble remembering. This is, in fact, an emotional memory study, which is how we had sold it. And in this emotional memory study, one of the things we wanted to look at, because we anticipated people to have trouble remembering at times, was retrieval methods. And so then we'd ask, so would you like to try this, this memory retrieval technique? <laughs> wow. As if it was a choice, right? right, right. <laughs> and of course, at this point, everyone's thinking, I can't remember this event. Of course, we're going to try this. Um, and then I'd mislead them and say the majority of people who use this technique is a little bit of social pressure. Uh, if they try hard enough, <laughs> they'll get the memory back. And what does that imply? That implies that if you're not, you're not remembering the event because you're not trying hard enough. Right. So there's a lot of... And you use a lot of these kind of techniques. Uh, we did, yeah, like definitely. I, you, you list some of them out. And like some of the... They're so insidious. There's like... Uh, um, most people are able to retrieve these if they try hard enough. Like you just said, the uh, uh, building rapport, uh, uh, long pregnant pauses where people, <laughs> uh, the, uh, what else, what else? I love, there, you list them all out in the study and they, um, I, I love the idea that, that there's all these different directions you're coming from. So all these different tactics, cause you're, uh, motivated to get them to do this. And it, you know, like a police, uh, interrogator would, would, would be, I'm sorry, go ahead keep going. Yeah, no worries. Um, definitely. So yeah, we use all these different techniques. And so as you said, we, we use pregnant. It's amazing how much people will say if you don't say anything. Right, right. <laughs> so just to break a silence, people will give you more details. And then you're nodding and confirming, going, yeah, that really sounds like, that sounds correct. Um, was actually really good for facilitating this, this false information or this confabulation of details. Mm -hmm. So anyway, so we would have the participants in front of us. We'd be using these what not to do for memory retrieval techniques. But of course, they didn't know that. I even used things like I it don't <laughs> one of my lines for introducing this memory retrieval technique was I don't like to call it repression, but sometimes we push these memories to the side. <laughs> wow. Now, repression from an empirical stance is, is a highly questionable thing to begin with. Right. But it's a term that these students, who are mostly psychology students, have heard before. Mm -hmm. And there's some credibility associated. Oh, yeah, I've heard of that. Okay, yeah, good. So let's, let's try and uncover this, this possibly repressed memory. Um, so anyways, so then we'd go through this over three weeks. We do it every time. We'd always talk about their true memory, and then we'd go into the false memory. Mm -hmm. And first interview, I remember my very first detail that was ever generated by a participant. I'm about three, three or four participants in at this point. And there's a girl, she's got her eyes closed in front of me and she's doing the visualization. So it's a context reinstatement is what we called this. And it's where you picture yourself at the age of 13, you're in, and you, things that are really easy to picture. Mm -hmm. So just your hometown, your best friend, and then the event, how would it have happened? And so she's sitting there visualizing and she just, she doesn't say anything for the first five minutes. And then she goes, blue sky, <laughs> <laughs> definitely a blue sky. That was my first detail. That was the blue sky detail. And that was definitely, definitely just the beginning because over the next two interviews, so second and third interview, these 
these memories just got increasingly embellished, increasingly embellished to the point where the overwhelming majority of participants not only came to accept the notion that they'd done these crimes or these emotional events, which we'd also implanted, but they also gave us dozens and dozens and dozens of details. So they gave us a huge amount of details. Because you had a really high standard for what you would consider a false memory, right? We did, yeah. So you had to have at least 10 details. You had to remember who, what, when, and where. So where it was, who you were with, when it happened, etc. And there was almost always so multi-sensory components, as we called them. So you could hear things in the memory. They could feel things in the memory, taste things in the memory, smell things in the memory. Not that everybody had each of these, but they had about the same levels for these things as they did for their true memories. So that was really fascinating. So what, what, what percentage of the people generated this, this, uh, this false memory? What percentage of people did you implant the memory of a crime? So we had 60 participants in total. 30 of these had the crime condition and the other had an emotional memory condition. And 71% of those who we'd told had committed a crime came to believe it and came to form these false memories. And what kind of crimes were they? Assault, assault with a weapon and theft. And all of them were with police contact because <laughs> that's how we, we told them that they'd, the police had contacted their parents, which is how their parents knew about it. So, I mean, I'm imagining these are just, you know, uh, co- these are college students who are just strolling around feeling good about life. <laughs> and then, and then within, within just a few, um, uh, minutes with a with the clever psychologist they were convinced they had assaulted someone with a weapon when they were younger <laughs> that's so terrifying <laughs> to know that that's possible it's um, enlightening let's let's use the word enlightening okay it's it's <laughs> it is terrifying and enlightening it, it is i mean um and it was so easy to do and that and you know you, you used known some known techniques and some of your own uh uh you know clever um uh ideas as well and um the the implications seem you know enormous for this uh i'm sure that, that this is like a, a big part of um where you guys are thinking too you know what is it, what are the implications in your mind of what you've discovered here when it comes to things like police interrogation and confessions and um even you know things like repressed memories where uh people you know remember something bad happened to them as a child and then that becomes a legal issue and uh all sorts of things like that what what do you think are the implications the implications. So <laughs> the implications are clearly for law enforcement that if you are going to talk to people about their memories, which is a thing that you'll commonly find them doing, <laughs> that you need to make sure that you're not using misinformation. So misinformation is saying that, for example, you have a fingerprint of them at the scene or you know about something they've done at the crime as crime scene or during the crime. And then telling them about it. So just like I said, I know that you assaulted someone with a weapon. That's misinformation. And t- telling them they did something they didn't do. And that can quite easily be spun into more. Especially when you use things like, well, these poor memory retrieval techniques, such as visualizing it, if you will, fantasizing about it. Um, and yeah, closed-ended questions, even open-ended questions. Uh So what's amazing is that this study actually used the status quo of um, appropriate police interviewing for the interview itself, not for the memory retrieval technique. But for the interview itself, it was all, tell me everything you remember. It It wasn't particularly leading. So leading questions, of course, we already know 
have huge potential to um, distort reality or distort memory accounts. But my research is showing that maybe even open-ended questions, maybe even questions that don't seem threatening, that seem quite neutral, in and of themselves can have the potential to facilitate these false memories mm -hmm. as well. So it really challenges the notion of, well, what do we do now? Right, I know. <laughs> so uh, how do we ask any questions? And now we take a break from our show for a word from our sponsor. It's been said that we should surround ourselves with people who are smarter than us, benefit from their knowledge, keep ourselves challenged. And that's why I love having unlimited access to the great courses Plus, and I keep encouraging you to sign up too, because you learn from award-winning professors and experts about whatever interests you, whenever you want. The Great Courses Plus has engaging, on-demand video lectures in thousands of different topics, and they're easy to fit into your schedule because you can watch them anytime, at home, at the gym, on a break at work. Start and resume them from any device. Now, I just watched their course, Games People Play, Game Theory in Life, business, and beyond. And game theory is the scientific study of interactive, rational decision-making. And it has proven instrumental in helping us understand how human beings make decisions. Out of the 24 lectures in this course, the one that has a lot of relevance right now is number 20, all about voting. Game theory shows that no matter how you present the choices of candidates, voters will in some way be influenced by how that stuff is presented. There's no completely fair way to do it. And after this course, you will know which ways are more fair than others. I want you to sign up so you can start streaming courses like this right now. And here's what you can do. As one of my listeners, you will immediately get a free month of unlimited access to all the great courses, lectures you can fit into your brain. All you have to do to start that free month is go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart. Smart. And now we return to our program. <laughs> Which is good because I mean, uh, all of our so much of our legal system was created. You know, it's pre-scientific. It's 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 uh, before we even <laughs> had these, before we even had the entire field of psychology. We were we, we came up with things like juries and uh, and. Uh, you know, testimony and, 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 so, and many of these in, interrogation techniques. Um, so it's fantastic that you are, you and other scientists are doing stuff like this, saying like, well, maybe we should completely, re, you know, reboot this thing because, I mean, it sound, your study, when you read through it, you're like, this sounds a lot like what I've seen in like, you know, crime dramas where they go and they, <laughs> you know, they go interview the people who the person knows and then they go um, talk to eyewitnesses. And then finally, you know, they put them under the white light and say, this is what we know. This is what people are telling us. Why won't you tell us the truth? You know, uh, in your mind, do you think that there are, um, there are people right now who have delivered false confessions that they truly personally believe that they did, but they did not do those things? Definitely, definitely, definitely. But uh, in terms of applying my study directly to these kinds of contexts, I mean, there are a number of differences between my study and reality, if you will. Sure. First of all, it's unlikely that police would want to generate a false memory. They might want to generate a confession, but they probably don't understand that sometimes the way that they're getting that is through a false memory. But I'm intentionally not just trying to get a confession, but I'm trying to get them to internalize it. I'm trying to get them to come up with these details, which again, I would argue is fundamentally different than the goal from the outset that any 
any reasonable police officer should have. So that that's a difference. But yeah, I mean, the techniques themselves. And I think that actually being friendly, this is something that's also un- underexplored, I think, because I was really friendly to my participants. <laughs> and just like in life, I think people are more likely to help out and do well and try harder for someone who they like. And so if you have a really friendly cop and you're an eyewitness or a potential eyewitness in a, to a crime, and they're being great and nice to you and asking you all these kinds of questions, you might be more likely to generate false memories, more likely to give them details than if they're being really hostile and aggressive. Mm-hmm. So being friendly could actually be a risk factor, wow. <laughs> uh, which That's is so which is interesting. That's so amazing. And, you know, uh, I, I wonder about what our lives are going to be like as we move into a future where more and more of of our experiences are recorded and more and more of, um, you know, our public interactions with, with each other are witnessed by, you know, uh, cameras and, and that we have a more detailed estimation of our memories because we've saved things with our phones and they're in our social media. So like we we're entering a new era of augmented memory. Um, and it's, it's, it's a really, it's a, I think we're really developing as a, as a species, a new relationship with memory itself. And so your research is a really important when it comes to that new relationship, I think. Yeah, the new relationship. I mean, there has been some research that has looked at whether or not things like social media help or hinder our memory performance. And so far, it seems like it does a bit of both. <laughs> because of course, you're also, the way I like to talk about Facebook, and I mean, it's made fun of all over the interwebs, is that Facebook is the best version of you. Right, yeah. And so the way we represent ourselves, especially in social media, might actually lead to positive distortions in memory in that you're only filtering and only recording and documenting the best things, the things you want to remember. Totally. It's like a reality show, but just just for you. Of your own life, Yeah. yeah. Your, it's um, so. your your own PR campaign. It's totally <laughs> your own PR campaign, and also, but I mean, that could actually have a positive effect, not necessarily on accuracy of memory, but on um, really focusing on the good things in life. That's true so, for for happiness more than for memory. Wow! So um, yeah. uh, you are you're going to put all of this into a book, right? I am. So tell me a little bit about that before we before we uh, have to depart. Tell me about this book project. So I'm working on a book with Penguin Random House called The Memory Illusion. And they saw an interview that I'd given in in a newspaper in London here. And they found it really interesting to see kind of like all the things we talked about, how just how malleable memory can be. And so this book, so The Memory Illusion, Why You May Not Be Who You Think You Are, really delves into everyday memory errors such as forgetting a a name or a phone number, and moves all the way to how we can create completely absurd or seemingly absurd false memories of things such as alien abductions, of violent crimes, of impossible and highly implausible memories. Mm -hmm. And so it really takes the reader through everything from tiny everyday memories and builds up because these big memory errors are really just cumulative cumulative effects of these tiny memory errors that we experience regularly. Wow. That's going to be awesome. Uh, when do you think that'll be around? Is it sometime this year or next year? Next year. So it's expected to come out in spring of or early 2016. Okay, cool. Um, maybe we, we can get you back then, or, or at least I will definitely tell people, go get this book. So, um, <laughs> sounds good. Um, I appreciate it. Yeah, totally. Uh, Tell me, um, so for everyone who's heard this and they're like, I want to keep up with this, uh, this person forever, how could they find you on the internet and keep up with you? 
They can find me through my university. Since doing this interview, she now has a website. It's drjuliashaw.com, D-R, drjuliashaw.com. And I'm working on a website as well, but it's not up yet. So okay. soon, hopefully, I'll be more Googleable. Well, thank you so much for your time. This is absolutely fascinating stuff. I am so glad you're one of these people out there who is, uh, you know, doing this kind of work. And that, uh, and I love that already the world is like, hey, what's she doing? So that they'll keep up with you in the future. So this is um, this is great. And I really appreciate you coming on the show. Oh, well, thanks for having me. That is it for this episode of the You're Not So Smart podcast. Go to boingboingpodcasts.com for more great podcasts like this one. Go to iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or youarenotsosmart.com to get all the previous episodes, including show notes and extras and stuff you might not have found. Go to Patreon and become a patron of the show to get extra episodes, extra content, and all sorts of other cool stuff. That's patreon.com slash you are not so smart. Next episode should be all about Reddit, about change my view about a community there and how scientists are studying it. The founder of Reddit will be our guest on the show, among other people. I think you will really dig this episode. I've had so much fun putting it together. Find us on Twitter at NotSmartBlog. I'm on Twitter at David McGraney. You can also find us on Facebook at You Are Not So Smart. Okay, back to writing this book. Ugh, can't wait. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns. And I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before. And this helped. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. And the question is, time for what? If our time was unlimited, how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com.
com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S.